This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Just a few minutes ago, I learned I might have the lesson, so, so I hurried out to the truck and checked my magic box. And these were charts I had in it, and I know Brother Howard enjoys a study on the prodigal, and he's here today, and so I thought, well, let's go ahead and do this study. And uh, what you notice the, the material on the back side, the scriptures typed out in larger font. And I realize that on the front is pretty small. The same thing that's on the front is basically on the back. And if you'll just flip over and read from the back side, it'll be a whole lot easier and more eye-friendly for you. And I'm going to read from Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. And let's read through verse 32. This is Christ speaking. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And, and he said, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Many people call this parable the pearl of all of the parables that Jesus gave. And the Lord taught a lot of things in parables. And if you've studied His teaching, you know that He used parables many, many times when He spoke. He had a way of teaching and adapting His message to where anyone could understand it if they wanted it. If they really were serious about what He was saying. If they really were interested in righteousness and in seeking the kingdom. They could understand the words of Christ. Mark 4 verse 33 tells us that he spake as they were able to hear. And Jesus, if you study his parables, you'll find some of those parables have, would have special meaning to people depending upon their circumstances in life. For example, what their occupation was and such things as this. The Lord gave a lot of parables about the kingdom. And as you look at his parables about the kingdom... Some of those parables we, we know might be of interest, let's just say, to farmers. Jesus would teach about the kingdom. He would say the kingdom is like unto a man that sowed good seed in his field. 
And as he sowed, the enemy came, and, or while he slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now these farmers, because it was their occupation to farm, could understand that message perhaps better than anyone. They got the application of it. It, it had special meaning to them. If he were giving a parable on the kingdom that, that might have an appeal to the fishermen that plied their trade there in the waters of Galilee, he might say the kingdom is likened to a net which was let out into the sea and gathered of fishes. And those fishermen could appreciate that lesson. It was in terms of their occupation. If he gave a parable that might appeal to the merchant men in Palestine, he might say the kingdom is likened to a man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. And the merchant men would appreciate that lesson. If he were speaking of the kingdom in a way that might be appreciated, especially by the housewives there in Palestine, he could say the kingdom is like unto leaven which a woman hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And of course those housewives would appreciate the lesson that, that he that they gave because they made bread every day. But if the Lord would give a parable, folks, it would have an appeal to all of us, regardless of our social standing, our gender, our, our class, our occupation, he might use a parable like the one we've read. And it's really not difficult to understand why this parable especially touches and moves our hearts maybe like nothing else Jesus gave. Many people who study literature have concluded this parable is one of the great works of literature. Jesus never meant it as a literary composition. And yet scholars have deemed it to be such because it's so beautiful. And when you look at the parable, there's a reason why this parable has appeal to us. It has to do with the home. And if, if you that are here will just think back, you that are older especially, think back on your home. Think back on the days growing up. Think back on your siblings, your mom and dad. Some homes you know are better than others. Some are not very pleasant sometimes, but generally speaking, there's great sentiment when we bring up the home. And of course, this is a family composed of a father here, a very loving and merciful father. It's composed of an elder son, and this elder son is selfish and unloving and uncaring and unforgiving. It's composed of a prodigal son, of a wayward son, a younger one who lost his way in life and went into a far country and wasted everything his father had given him. And it's the, the story of his return, his journey back to the father and the reception that that father gave him. There's just things about this dealing with the home that have a, have a great appeal to our heart. I love this story. I love it because it demonstrates and teaches the mercy of God and and I don't know of any place in Scripture where His mercy is shown and demonstrated any more than in this tender story. I know you've heard it a thousand times, maybe you've read it many times, but let's study it again because there's lesson after lesson after lesson and we should, we should see the, the love and mercy of a, of a Heavenly Father as we, as we study this. I mentioned that Jesus taught in parables and I don't know if you've ever thought about what a parable means. What is a parable if you had to define it? The word means placing beside. That's really literally what it means. Placing beside. And what Jesus would do is tell a story. And what he'd do with that story is take the characters in it and the events in it and place them beside truths that he wished to teach and illustrate. He had a masterful way of doing that. He placed things beside. Now in this story, it so happens there's three main characters here. One of them is a loving father. And then we have an elder brother. Or we could call him a son. And we have this prodigal son, this younger son. And you know, I don't know of anyone that studied this parable who's not concluded that the Father in this story represents our Heavenly Father, represents God Himself. I know other people have drawn different conclusions. I don't know how. 
because this seems to be the very person the father in the story is meant to represent, that Jesus placed this father beside our heavenly father to teach us about him and how he views people. Then you've got the two sons, and there's where a dispute has come in in the past because different people have had different ideas about this, these, these two boys. Some have said that the elder brother represents Jesus, that the younger son represents Adam. I do not believe this theory, but I don't know how anybody came up with it because Jesus and Adam were not sons of God in the same sense. Jesus is the only begotten son. He is the Son of God in an exclusive sense, in that He did not have an earthly father. God was His Father. And God selected a virgin out of Israel by the name of Mary, and the Holy Spirit came down and caused her pregnancy, caused her to be with child there in the womb, miraculously. No intervention of man. She never knew man until after Jesus was born. He was completely born of a virgin, and that which was born of Mary there is the Son of God, because God is the Father of that Son, by miraculous things, of course. And so Adam was never a son in that sense. Jesus is, and He's the exclusive Son of God, the only begotten. The only begotten of the Father, John said, full of grace and truth. Also, if, if the elder son represents Jesus, it's going to represent Christ as being angry because the younger brother of his returned home. That's not a picture of Christ at all. Jesus would have never been angry for the return of a sinner, see? Never. But uh, we just reject these two things. They just, there's just no fit here. There's another theory that's a little bit maybe better, which says that the elder son represents the Jews... The younger son represents us Gentiles. Now that has some merit to it because it's interesting that this elder brother remained at the father's house. The Jews, all during the time that Moses' law was in existence, some 1,500 years, remained at the father's house, so to speak, while us Gentiles were off in a far country like this prodigal son, a far country of paganism and idolatry. So there, there seems to be some merit to that, but I don't think Jesus is teaching in this parable the difference in Jews and Gentiles and how a Jew received a Gentile back and such things as this. I don't think that's the lesson he's trying to impart. Who do these two boys represent? Well, in Luke 15, we only read one parable. There's actually three. And if you will go to the back side again, though we could look on the front, but let's go to the back since it's larger. And look at Luke 15 down there, verse 1 and 2. Luke says, speaking of Christ, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. I want you to notice who drew near to Christ when he was here, who found him attractive. Publicans, who are they? They are the old tax collectors. They are Jews that Rome has, has, has uh, bargained with to extract taxes from their own countrymen. Rome taxes every country that it conquers, its citizens. And these men have agreed, being Jews, to collect taxes from their own Jewish brethren. They were despised of the, of the Jews because they not only extracted taxes of their own countrymen, they charged large fees in so doing and lined their own pockets, being covetous and greedy. Uh, they, they just became filthy rich off the backs of their own countrymen by, really, by extortion by taking too much as they collected. Nobody liked these men. They were despised, you see. The Jews held them in contempt. And yet, then drew near unto Jesus all the publicans. Then he said the sinners drew nigh. And I would imagine prostitutes, thieves, drunkards, all kinds of folks drew near to Christ. They found Him. They saw something in Him that they didn't see in the Jewish leaders. They couldn't see this in the Pharisees and in the scribes. You know, we've read on several occasions when we study about Christ that He spoke as no other man had spoken. 
And when he finished his great sermon on the mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Bible tells us in Matthew 7, 28, 29, that he spake as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was a different ring to Christ's teaching. And so they found him quite approachable. They found him loving. They found him compassionate and merciful. Not compromising God's word, but understanding their human frailties and their sins and showing mercy and compassion for them. And they were drawn to Christ. They had watched him as he ministered to the sick, to the poor, as he cast out devils, as he healed. They had seen his interaction with the common people because our Lord gravi gravitated more to the poor than he did to the rich and the high and mighty. And so they were attracted to Christ just simply probably by his demeanor. Now notice the Pharisees and scribes, verse 2, murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now there's the charge against Jesus. He's receiving sinners and eats with them. You see, what their point was that these publicans and sinners are drawing near to Christ, if they really knew who this man was, I mean, if he really were the Son of God, if he really were a man of God, he wouldn't associate with this riffraff. That's really what they're saying. He wouldn't let publicans get near him. He wouldn't associate with sinners like this. That's really what they're trying to say. This man receives sinners. That was the charge against Christ. And he eats with them. So the Lord gives three parables. And what we need to understand is he's speaking mainly to his enemies. These parables are given to the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, that's who the two elder brothers are. This elder brother represents these scribes and Pharisees that are murmuring and complaining. This prodigal son represents the publicans and the sinners that are being attracted to Christ, that he's rescuing, you see. And as he does that, they're sitting here in their self-righteousness, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the picture now that, that the Lord's trying to give us with these three boys. The father represents God our father. The elder brother, scribes and Pharisees. The younger son, publicans and sinners. Okay? Now as we look at the parable, I've got about 14 points here listed on the front side that we're going to go through, and I've given you three here, basically on the father, the elder brother, the prodigal here. But I want to look first at the prodigal before we, I mean, excuse me, at the elder brother before we ever talk about the prodigal himself. It's an ugly picture we get of this elder brother. Brethren, I don't think when we study Luke 15 we focus enough on the elder brother. We're prone to just simply focus on the prodigal and we miss some things about the elder brother, things that we need to learn, things we need to be careful about in how we, how we feel about those that are in sin, those that have strayed away from our Lord and have come back because so many people are high and mighty and want to be self-righteous and holier than thou and dredge up the past on people and, you know, and, and bruise them with it. And uh, the Lord's trying to teach us against this kind of behavior as Christians, to be merciful and forgiving like He is. As this elder brother comes back from the field, he gets nigh to the house. The Bible says that he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants to him. And he asked him, what does this mean? What's going on up at the house? And he tells him, your brother has returned, your father's killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. The Bible says of this elder brother, he was angry and would not go in. He wouldn't even go in the house. The father had to come out and entreat him. And down in the bottom of your chart there, on the bottom right, if you'll look on the front, I put a little box there with verse 29 on it because... When you read the response of this elder brother to the father, uh, you, get a, you get a good picture of this elder brother and what he's like. He was angry and wouldn't go in. His father comes out and entreats him. Verse 29, he answering said to his father, 
Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. And if we went on and read verse 30, he tells him, But as soon as this thy, thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Look at verse 29 here in, in the sense, I put some words in red, they're all pronouns, five of them. And it points out the selfishness and the self-righteousness of this man quite clearly. Lo, these many years, he said, do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might mar marry with my friends. Five times he refers to himself in this one statement. You see his selfishness here, his self-centeredness, his self-righteousness. He's the one imported here, not the fact that his brothers come back. He said, I've served you all these many years. I didn't transgress your commandments. And you never gave me a kid that I could make merry with my friends. Isn't that a pitiful response? But that's his response. You see, he cares nothing about the brother. I don't know how long this boy's been gone, but this is a brother to that, to that older son. It's not only the father's son, it's his own brother. And where's his love for this brother, and where's his compassion? Where's his mercy? You see, there is none. And notice something else, folks. Notice how he takes pleasure, takes delight in bringing up the sins of his brother. Father, he says, he has devoured your living with harlots. Father, this, this, this son of yours has gone over to another land. He's taken all that money you gave him and he's bought prostitutes with it. He's wasted your substance. That's the charge. You see, he can't let that go. The, boys, the boy did that all right. Number one, it wasn't the elder brother's money. It wasn't his substance that was wasted. He didn't fund that adventure. He didn't fund those sins. So why, why should it bother him, especially about the expenditure? Well, of course, it shouldn't. Secondly, the boys come back. He's repented. Thirdly, the fathers received him and forgiven him. Why is he dredging up the sins of this boy? Why is he bringing up the past? Why can't he let it go? And you know, when, when we think about the application for you and I, have you ever known people that dredged up the sins in the past of others? Ever seen that in the church? It's detestable. Somebody will say, yeah, I, I know so-and-so over there. Years ago, he did this. He ran around on this woman, or he did this or that, and everybody dredges that back up, even though it's been long repented of and forgiven, see. But there's people that just will not let things go like that, and they've got to bring the past up. I've thought a lot about some of the sins that God has forgiven in the past. Have you ever thought much about David? I'm sure a lot of you have. David was an adulterer with Bathsheba, and he was a murderer. He killed her husband. And what did God do? He sent Nathan the prophet there to rebuke David and to make him aware of his sin, and David repented. And Nathan told him a message from the Lord. He said, The Lord hath put away your sin, David. You, you will not die. Now David paid for that sin in his lifetime by, by some, some murder that went on in his own house, and also by sexual sins in his own house. God told him, you're going to pay four times over. What you've done in private is going to be done in public. David had to suffer for that. He had to reap what he sowed. But the Lord forgave him. Now folks, we read from, we read from Psalms this morning. That was our scripture reading, wasn't it? We're reading through the Psalms right now. Who wrote those Psalms? An adulterous murderer. When you read the book of Psalms, you're reading the writings of an adulterer and a murderer. But he's an adulterer and a murderer that God cleaned up and forgave. And God uses people. He doesn't, he doesn't throw them away if he can reclaim them. He's merciful. 
And when David threw himself on the mercy of God and turned from his unrighteousness, God forgave him. And David, of course, kept his rulership over God's people. God calls him, God calls David himself a man after God's own heart. Because basically David's intent was to do right. It was to do righteousness. That's what he sought to do all of his days. He messed up in this area with Bathsheba. But he was a righteous man basically and God acknowledged him to be so. And was merciful. I wonder how many churches today would let David preach in their pulpit. Would they hold that against him? Well, he's not speaking here. He, he committed adultery. That man was a murderer. Yet we, we get up in our assemblies and we read his writings. Makes no sense, does it? I'm not condoning the sins of David but simply showing that God cleans folks up and uses them. And this elder brother is being warned. And what Jesus is doing with this parable, and all these parables here, is he's trying to show, trying to show these scribes and Pharisees that they're acting just like the elder brother. He gives, he gives two more parables. Let's read them now. Let's read verses 3 through 7. This is spoken to the scribes and Pharisees. He spake this parable unto them. Notice who them is. These Pharisees and scribes. He spake this parable unto them saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now these scribes and Pharisees, folks, could understand that if a man had a hundred sheep, and he lost one of the sheep, that he'd leave the ninety-nine over here, and go after the one that he lost. And when he found it, it would be a great occasion to rejoice. He would carry that little lamb home on his shoulders and say, Rejoice with me. I found, found the sheep which I lost. But here's Jesus now, and he's out rescuing the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what are they doing? They're murmuring, they're not rejoicing. That these lost sheep, like the younger son, have returned back. Instead, they're murmuring and they're criticizing. And they're, they're charging Christ with this man receives sinners and eats with them. Unlike these, these ones that would rejoice over a lost sheep. And these Pharisees would do that. They will not rejoice over a lost sinner that gets restored. Then he gives another parable. This is verses 8 to 10. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently until she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Brethren, these, these evil scribes and Pharisees could understand that a woman who had ten coins, maybe coins made in the image and superscription of Caesar, if she loses one of them, she would light a candle and sweep her entire house and search diligently. And if she found that one coin, it would be a great occasion for her to rejoice. And she would rejoice and call her friends to rejoice. But now that Jesus is finding lost souls, souls that aren't stamped in the image of Caesar, souls that are stamped in the image of Almighty God, and now that He's finding these and restoring them back, they're not rejoicing. They'll rejoice over a lost coin. They'll rejoice over a lost sheep, both of which become found, but not over a lost sinner that gets restored to the fold of God. Isn't that amazing? And now do you see who this parable's to? 
Do you see now who the two boys represent? The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is teaching them, stop this, quit murmuring like this, and rejoice that these people that are coming to me, these publicans and sinners, are being restored back to God. See? And we miss sometimes the import of why he's doing all these parables by focusing simply and entirely on the prodigal. We're going to do that all right. But I hope none of us here today look at this elder brother and see a picture of ourselves. And that's really what Christ is, is saying to these scribes and Pharisees. Look at this elder brother. Look at him. Because in him and his actions you see a true picture of yourselves. And hopefully nobody here is that way and of course is that cruel and mean. When somebody among us leaves and gets back in the world and they come back to the Lord, it's a time to rejoice. It's not a time to dredge up the past. It's a time to along with God forgive them. And to be merciful toward them, even as God has been merciful toward you and I, because at best, every one of us are sinners. The difference between the faithful Christian and someone in the world is just simply this. One is forgiven and one's not. One is walking with the Lord and one's not. And of course, we need to be willing to extend that mercy. Let's turn our attention now to the prodigal. We've got a lot of things to say about him. That's the three boys. Jesus said that this man that had two sons, the younger of them came to him one day and said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. Some people criticize the father for doing this. They say, well, he shouldn't have given the boy all that wealth. He shouldn't have given him that money. But you see, this father represents God, and God doesn't compel His children to serve Him. They have freedom, free will, and He blesses us with things. And He leaves us to use those things according to our free will. This boy is a free moral agent. And when he comes to the Father, the Father then recognizes His free will. He divides to Him His living as well as the elder brother. He divided unto them His living. Then we read of that younger son that not many days thereafter he took his journey and went into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And so I've concluded a long time ago that when this young boy came to his father he was already in this far country. He'd heard about this place over here. That if you could just get over here to this land why, over here in the far country, you could just have a wonderful time over here. If you had a little bit of money, you could buy about anything that would satisfy the desires that you have, the lust of the flesh and such things. And if he could just get a little money, I'm sure he was already plotting this journey when he came to his father and asked for that portion of goods. You see, when a person's in the far country and they're thinking, it's not very long until they're ended in their living. And he was thinking about this, and he got over there and began to live that life very soon, as soon as he got that substance. Notice it's called the far country, and notice it's stated by Jesus that he took his journey. People don't become exceedingly bad overnight. It's a journey. It takes time. They don't become exceedingly good overnight. That's a journey. You and I are on a journey trying to become more like Christ. It is a journey, isn't it? We've got all kinds of warts and things that God has got to remove from us and out of our lives and purify us more and make us more like our Savior. And that takes time. It's not done quickly. This, this boy took his journey. Notice he went into the far country. That far country represents in the parable the land of sin. A land of sin. That's a far country because you're never further from God than when you're in sin. And this boy's off in sin and that's, that's what we ought to get out of that far country. We're told that there he wasted his substance. 
with riotous living. There's nothing over here to invest in. There's a lot of people that think sin is, sin is such a wonderful thing. But you know, there's, there's pleasure in sin. The Bible speaks of it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There's pleasure in sin or people wouldn't do it. We don't do things that aren't pleasurable usually. We do them a lot more easily, don't we? Sin's fun. The problem with sin is it has a payday. One day we've got to reap, as Paul would say in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that must he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So there's a reaping for this sin, and that's what the boy is experiencing once he get over here. He wasted his substance on riotous living. doesn't say he invested it. There's nothing over there to invest in. He spent everything he had, and he wasted the entire substance with his riotous living. The Bible says then that when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. That famine is to represent to us in the parable a spiritual drought. And there's always a famine in the service of the devil. Always. You and I were created by God to have a relationship with Him. To have a righteous relationship with our Creator. That's why we're made. We're made that way. That's why nearly in any place you go on earth you'll find people have some kind of concept of God. They want to please their Creator, whatever they consider Him to be. Might be a piece of wood or a stone or something they've made. But they'll seek to please that and they'll sacrifice to it because man has a sense that he's just failing and coming short. And he desires to please Him. And that's, of course, what we, we all strive to do. He's wasted that substance. Now there's a famine. Why is there a famine over here in the far country? Because it's teaching us that in sin there's always a famine when it comes to our soul. There's a famine on what our soul needs. We've got a deep longing within us to be right with our God, don't we? Every human being feels that. And when we're off in sin, we sense that things are not right. That we don't have that relationship with our God. That this all is not well with the soul. Because in sin, you see, there's, there's a, a famine for the things the soul needs to subsist and thrive. And sin doesn't furnish that. It can furnish a lot of other pleasures and satisfy the flesh, but it can't satisfy the inner longings that we have. And that relationship with God there's a famine, and our souls do what? What happens in a famine? Things wither and die. And when we get off in sin like this, we die spiritually. Because we've cut ourselves off from the source of life and the things that our soul needs. There arose a mighty famine in that land, Jesus said, and he began to be in want. That should have turned him right there. He should have said, all right, I've made a grave mistake. I'm going to turn around right now and I'm going back to Father. I'm going to get out of this mess. But you see, he, he did what a lot of people tried to do. He wanted to lift himself up by the bootstraps, as we say. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now there's a great occupation for a Jewish boy, feeding the pigs of a foreigner. And that's what he's wound up with. He's traded the father's substance for a pig pen over here. And so he's, he's joined himself to a citizen and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now what's that get him? He would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. There is a picture of the degrading consequences of sin right there. You see, no man gave unto him. When he, had his, uh, when he had a little money here, I'm sure he was a popular man over here in this country. 
When he might could buy a round of drinks, everybody loved him. But when he got broke and he could no longer do that, he wasn't loved very much, was he? And when he got down on his luck and when he ran out of money, where's his friends? Y'all ever notice that when people out in the world have problems and difficulties, who they go to? What if they have a death in the family? Do they run to the local bartender and ask him to help them? No, they need a funeral preach, don't they? They're looking for comfort. They're looking for peace. They'll come to religious people every time. They'll come to the church. And I don't know how many funerals I preach of folks I don't even know that are out in the world even. Folks I've never met. But the family needs help. And so what do we do? We have compassion and we go help them. And we try to comfort them and give them some good counsel and advice. People out in the world don't get much help from their own out there. And no man gave unto him. He's hit the bottom of the barrel with what's happened. Now my question to you as you think about this young boy right now, why is he in the shape he's in? Why would he rather feed the devil's pigs in a far country when he could be a servant or a son back here at the father's house with all of its honor and privileges? Why would he trade that for a pig pen over here? Why? Why has he done that? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the Lord's going to tell us why in just a minute. And it'll be why every sinner is in the shape that they're in. It's the answer to why people love sin and why they're in sin. And here it is in verse 17. Read it with me. Jesus said, and when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and despair and I perish with hunger. That's an interesting statement right here. He came to himself. Now what does that tell you about him? That he's been beside himself. That he hasn't been thinking clearly. Basically he's insane. There's two kinds of insanity. There is a, there is a mental insanity. And a lot of people have mental problems. They can't help it. They're born that way or it develops as life goes on. In a lot of cases, they're just not responsible at all and they suffer because of that. I've got a little brother that's bipolar. At one time, he was stout, worked two jobs. I mean, just had, had life really going well. Nice family. He got down to where he couldn't even change a flat tire on his car. I mean, his mind, he would, just, uh, he would just go from one end of it to the other, and he finally, he would be ornery some days, and you couldn't stand to be around him. The next day, he was happy-go-lucky, and his mood just swung all the time, and he was either a stinker or a great guy. And he lost jobs. Finally got to where he couldn't work, and now he's just utterly dependent upon help. Lives off the government. People like this need compassion. They can't help that situation. And there's a lot of mental insanity, but there's another kind of insanity. Sanity. There is a moral insanity. A moral insanity. And people that are morally insane are responsibly insane. And this boy's moral insanity is seen in, in his actions. He has paid too much for what he's getting. He's traded the privilege of being a son at the father's house for a pig pen over here in the far country. What would you think of me if I had property worth a million dollars and I sold it for a buck? You'd say, well, Pat's crazy. A million dollar piece of land he sells for a dollar? That's what this boy's done except worse. He's traded the wealth and privilege of his sonship at his father's house for a herd of swine over here in the far country and he doesn't even own the herd. He would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, and friends, listen, when sinners come to themselves, they come back to God. Let's remember that. 
The reason people are in sin today is they haven't been thinking right. They're not thinking right. They're not looking down the road. That's all. They're not looking at the future. Like I read about Moses earlier. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11, verse 26 to 28. You see, Moses looked way down the road when he made this decision. He could have stayed in Egypt, been maybe Pharaoh one day, had wealth, wine, women, song, anything he wanted there. Or he could suffer with God's people out in that barren wilderness and suffer affliction with them and find great reward in the end of it. And Moses looked at the greater reward and said, this is what I need to do. I need to deny myself Egypt and go with God's people. And that's what he did. He, he was thinking clearly, wasn't he? Finally, this boy woke up. When sinners come to themselves, they come to God. Remember that. And if you know folks right now that are off in sin, they're not thinking straight. That's all. They need some help if they can be made to see it. Okay? Now this boy finally sees it. So he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. I want you to look up there underneath the picture on the front at the top, top right. You'll see those verses. Let's read 18 and 19 of Luke 15 up there. Here's what he says he's going to do. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And I put that in red because I want you to notice that statement. He intends to go back and tell his father, just make me a hired servant, Father. Just, I've sinned against you. Just, just take me back as a servant. Okay? That's his intention now. And we read that he, he arose and came to his father. Picture him, if you can, as he leaves. Maybe his old clothing is just tattered up and he wraps that old tattered coat around and and uh, takes a last look at the herd of swine. His, his probably his feet are bare. As I said, clothing tatter. He's probably got feet, uh, uh, cheeks that have been furrowed out by a life of sin. You've seen people that have lived a hard life, all creased up as if they're 10 or 15, sometimes look 20 years older than what they are because they've lived such a hard life. He likely had an old weathered look, who knows? Don't know how long he's been gone. But now he starts home now. He starts back down this road to the father's house. Let's turn now and look at this father. We haven't talked much about him yet. But you know, he's had a vacancy there at his table. I don't know how long the boy's been gone, but I can tell you it's been longer to this father than anyone else. There are things worse than death. You know, you can give up a child a lot easier to death than you can give them up to the world if they're safe, if they're saved. At least there's some closure and some comfort in the fact that they belong to the Lord and all's well with their soul. But if they're off in sin, it's a, it's a sorrow. It's a bad sorrow. And it's hard to be healed of it because it's ongoing, see. It just keeps on. Day after day, this boy's been missing, and I don't know how long he's been missing, but it's been a long time to the dad. And he, he, he likely never quits looking for him. We read here from the words of Christ that one day, and evidently he was looking down this road, one day he sees someone coming down here in the distance. And maybe at first it doesn't dawn on him who it is, and maybe then it, it finally... It reaches his, his mind here. He sees the familiar stride of this boy. That's my son. He's coming back. What did the father do? How did he react when he saw that that was his boy coming? Did he go to the servants and say, All right, let's get these doors bolted around here. Latch the windows. 
There's that scalawag coming back in. I knew he would one day. And when he gets here, why, he's not coming in here. He's going to crawl and plead and beg me before I ever take him back. Is that the reaction of that father? When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. Now notice what he did. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He ran. He ran to meet him. How many times do you read in your Bible of God being in a hurry? We read in 2 Peter 3, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. For 100, 120 years, he waited on Noah to get that ark built before he ever flooded this earth. God moves very slowly. He's long-suffering. Peter said he's long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 and 9. So God usually moves very slow. And the only time I read of God in the Bible being represented as being in a hurry is when He's running to meet a returning sinner. Then He gets in a hurry. The Father ran to meet Him. And then we read that He fell on His neck and kissed Him. And I'm told this word, kissed Him, is repeated action in, in uh, pastime. It's present tense. And what it literally means is this, that He didn't just kiss the boy. He kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kept on kissing the boy, just smooching him up. And I want you to picture that scene when this father and son fall into each other's arms. And that father feels warm tears of repentance on his old aged cheek. And he kissed that boy over and over. And over again. That's the picture we're supposed to get of God, you see, in this story. It's what's so beautiful about it. He kissed him. Then the boy starts his confession. Now I want you to look down in the bottom right, right above the lower box, and look at the larger box. Luke 15, verse 21 to 23. Remember back up underneath the picture there, in verse 19, he was going to say, make me as one of your hired servants. Let's see what happened here now when he sees the father. The son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And before he can say, make me as one of your hired servants, the father interrupts him. But the father said to the servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. You see, the father won't let him make that statement, make me as one of your hired servants. And here's why. God doesn't have second-rate children. When we come back to God, we don't, we don't take a lower position than we had. If we've been away from him and he forgives, he restores us as a son. This boy's not going to be a hired servant. He's a son. And he's making that clear here. He don't let him make the confession, the request, make me as one of thy hired servants. If you're wondering, how will God treat you if you ever return to him? Well, here it is. But it gets even better. He says to the servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He tells him, tells the servants first of all, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. What does that mean? What's he saying here? I'm told back in those days that wealthy people, people of wealth, kept a garment they called the best robe. They didn't wear it themselves. It was saved, especially for a tremendous visitor, a person of royalty especially, somebody of high office. Whenever they paid a visit, they were, they were honored and privileged to wear the best robe. And they'd have that robe put on them. 
to honor them. Especially kings and other such people. So what Jesus is saying to the servants is, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. He's saying, give this boy a royal welcome. Treat him like a king. That's how the father felt. Then he said, put a ring on his hand. Why? Because a ring was a symbol of authority. When Joseph was cast in prison in Egypt and Pharaoh lifted him up out of prison, Pharaoh gave him his ring. And if anybody questioned Joseph's right about Egypt there as governor, second in command, all he had to do was show Pharaoh's ring. Because he had a high position. That's what a ring symbolized. Read the book of Esther. Esther's another example. The villain in that book is a man named Haman. He sought to exterminate all the Jews in the world. Mordecai, the, uh, the king there of, of uh, Persia, Ahasuerus, gave Haman his ring. When you read the outcome in the book of Esther, Esther's uncle was a Jew named Mordecai. Mordecai got the ring off of Haman. Haman was hanged on his own gallows. And Mordecai took the ring, and that ring, of course, enabled Mordecai to make laws and seal them with the king's ring there in the kingdom of Persia. And he controlled the fate of the Jews. Esther, that story there in Esther, is of how one woman saved the whole Jewish nation from a fellow like Hitler. It's a beautiful story. Ten chapters. Read it and study it sometime, and you'll see the ring in there. It comes up twice on Haman and then on Mordecai the Jew later. So what he's doing here is giving this boy back his authority. If anybody questions the right of this boy around the father's house, all he has to do is show the ring. You see, he will not make him a servant. He exalts him. Then he said, put shoes on his feet, implying that he came, came home barefoot or else the shoes were just worn out. And in those days, not very many people went barefoot. Those that did were people that were very poor or those that were in mourning or grief. If you read the story of David, when he fled out of Jerusalem from his son Absalom, the Bible talks of David. It says that he had his head covered. He crossed the brook there, headed up the slope of the Mount of Olives. His head was covered. His feet were bare. Why was David barefoot? He was king. He could afford shoes. David's heart was broken because his own son had stolen his kingdom. And now he's told this returning boy right here, told the servants, put shoes on his feet. What he's saying is the day of poverty is over. The day of sadness and mourning is over. Put some shoes on his feet. And he said, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. And that's just a feast. The picture of a feast in heaven. Over every returning sinner. The banquet table of God's grace. Is spread for every sinner that returns out of the far country of sin. And comes back to the Father. And if you wonder how's God going to treat me. How's he going to treat my loved one. This is how Jesus is trying to tell us. He's trying to teach this to the publicans and sinners that are there listening. And he's trying to teach it to these scribes and Pharisees. That he will run to meet you. That he will kiss you. That he will put the best robe on you. Put a ring on your hand and shoes on your feet. And kill the fatted calf. This is a parabolical representation of the reception that's awaiting on a returning sinner. If you're one of those sinners this morning, as we close our study, we offer an invitation if you need to come to the Father. Now you know how God will treat you. And if you need Him today in the forgiveness of your sins, whether you're an erring child or you want to become a child of God, He is filled with mercy for you today. This is the God we have. This is what the, the picture of this parable shows us. No wonder it's called the pearl of all the parables. Isn't it beautiful? 
And if you need the love of your Father today and His forgiveness, you come as we rise and sing the songs elected. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.